All right, we are off to a good start. Good morning, everybody. I am so excited to, to kind of launch off our catechism series with our first question. Obviously, pastors started last week just maybe teaching us what the word catechism means, but, but let's, uh, we're going to talk today about spiritual disciplines. So I'm going to start with a parable, um, one you may not have heard before, but there was a man who, after some period of time, decided that he had found the woman that he hoped to marry, and he asked her, Let, let's go to Vegas. They hopped on the first flight that they could find to find the first Elvis that would marry them, and he did. Can I get an amen? So they spent the week enjoying marriage, calling all their friends and family, telling them about this, this huge spontaneous decision that they had made, and, and it was time to go home. So they hopped on the flight back to Metro, and, and it was a few hours, and, and through the course of the flight, the husband realized, I am not ready to be married. My house is a mess. I, I haven't cleaned. I'm living on a cardboard box, and my TV doesn't have a TV stand. It's on the floor next to my PS5, and the house is not prepared. So she, he, he told his wife, it's time. You, I'm sorry. I'm not quite ready. I need you to go home to live with your mother and father for just a little bit longer while I get my house in order. And so that's what she did. And, and after a period of time, she phones him up and says, husband, I, I, I look forward to our marriage. I'm so excited. But this weight of, of you getting prepared for me to move in is getting a little bit tiresome. And I, I, I want my life to be changed. I don't just want to be uh, far apart and calling with my, my left hand, weighing a little bit more. Like, let's do something. He says, oh, you're, you're absolutely right. And I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm trying hard, but I'm really important. And all of these things are so valuable and treasured to me that I don't know what to get rid of and, and I don't know what to, to do and what, what to purchase and how to get things ready. And just give me a little bit more time, just, just a little bit more time. And so... A, a few months later, she calls him up and says, what's going on here? Like, just a short period of time, the man with the mutton chops gave us the vows, and we said, I do. And we agreed to, to love each other and to cherish and to care for each other. You made an agreement. What's going on? And he says, you know, I've been thinking a lot about that. I, I'm really comfortable with this life. I enjoy, I don't really want to make any sacrifices. Actually, I took my wedding ring off. If anybody asks me, I'll let them know that I'm married. But, you know, for my day-to-day -day life, I'm, I'm good. Like, this is, this is the perfect arrangement. I like the tax benefits. And so the next day, the wife arrived with her husband, or with her father, who grabbed him by the scruff of the neck and said, this is the woman you agreed to be married. And, and you agreed to transform your life and to change and, and, and to, to reduce all of your rights so that you would have greater responsibilities. You need to make changes now. And he, he threw him on the couch where there was weeping and gnashing of teeth. So today we're talking about getting our houses in order. We're talking about the spiritual disciplines. We talk about um, moving through the storms or, or the way that we were lived. So, so we're going to talk about the, the why of spiritual disciplines far more than we're going to talk about the what, because I think someone should write a book about why being greater than what. That would be something good. But we're going to really focus on why we do the spiritual disciplines, because I think that it's an art form. It's a practice that we have, we have lost as a, as a church, as a, as a church, not just Freedom Center, but as a church. And I think that there's some really valuable things for us to glean and to learn, and there's some beautiful truths that we can experience while doing them. So today we're going we're gonna to start off with going back to the garden. We're going to talk about the garden state. No, not New Jersey. We're not, mm -mm. 
No, I'm good. Like, they don't even pump their own gas there, right? Like, that's weird. Anyways, so we're going to go back to Genesis in the garden. Page one, chapter one of the Bible. The Lord sets up the garden. It is a, a state, an area, a place of bliss where Adam and Eve walk with the Lord every day. There's no pain, there's no suffering, it's just them and the Lord. And he gives them four, essentially four simple instructions. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the animals and don't eat from that tree. And he says, just do these four things and this is what I've created you to do. This is the experience of your existence that I've created you for. And unfortunately, they ate from the tree and we're gonna dive into that a little bit later in the message. Um, But but it, it doesn't work out. So after some time, a, a huge rainfall and a little bit more time, God's people who have now numbered far greater than just the two in the garden, there's so many, they're wandering the desert, preparing themselves for the promised land. And as they're preparing to go there, God gives the man Moses essentially four books full of instructions and patterns and and rules and don't eat this and do eat this and treat people this way and love each other and care for each other and don't do this and don't do this and do this and care for them and, and love them and all of these instructions because it was preparing the nation of Israel to enter into the promised land that would then be the garden nation. That all the other nations of the world would look to Israel And see that if we are obedient to the God of the universe, if we listen to the patterns and the measures of his, the way that he's created his people to do, they prosper. And for a while it was great. They, they took over every, every war they won, every city that the Lord told to take, they took, and they got a little bit headstrong. And they said, "Eh, listening to just you, Lord, isn't like, we can do, can we get some judges? So we appoint some judges. And then they're like, well, that's not a fancy title. How about a king? So God gives them a king, and kings are, are men. So they fail, and they, they aspire for things that are greater than their own. And so the Lord sends them prophets, and they kill all of those. And, and after a long period of time, man got their grubby fingers over the plans of the Lord. And it didn't quite work out. So then the Lord sends a son Jesus to live a life that is fully obedient in everything that he does. He doesn't just accept or, or check off all the boxes of the law, but he, he embodies them, that he loves people the way that they were meant to be loved, that he serves people the way that they were meant to be served, that he lives a life, an entire life, that is the garden life. Every moment that Jesus experiences is that as man was created to experience life. Now much, and he turned systems on their head and challenged the beliefs and the systems of, of so many people. And much like many radicals, Jesus was killed for, for his beliefs. He was killed for this challenge to the system. But unlike any other radical in human history, Jesus' death was not a, a defeat, but a victory. That in that victory, he, he freed us from the captivity of sin so that we would be welcomed into the kingdom of God. Right? Yeah, amen to that, right? Like, but my fear is that so many of us have, have come to church and, and stood on that and raised our hand and accepted that moment of his death as the marriage, like the man in the parable, but haven't transformed or allowed our lives to meaningfully change after that because Jesus' death wasn't the end. He rose again three days later, ascended to heaven 40 days later, 
and sent the Holy Spirit so that each and every single one of us have access to the garden state. That each of us can, can tap into the Holy Spirit living the way that the Lord has appointed us and created us and chosen us to live so that we can experience this garden state. Jesus teaches it as the kingdom of God. So we get to welcome that through this life, through, through looking at the patterns of Jesus' life, the way that he lived, the things that he did do, the things that he didn't do, we get to model our lives after the man Jesus, knowing that he was and is the perfect model for human existence. Man, what a great truth. So Jesus teaches us how to get there. So turn your Bibles to John chapter 3, or there's this huge screen right behind me, so you probably don't even need to do that. But at night, there was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus. He's a ruler of the Jews. And he came at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one can perform these signs you do unless God were with him. Jesus replied, truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. How can anyone be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked him. Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? Jesus answered, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the Spirit is spirit. And to be born again, this is a phrase that, that kind of has entered into this like Christianese phrase, like I'm born again. And, but I think we've missed the beauty of this imagery to be born again. Because I, you know, we have two young kids, and when they were born, they didn't know how to walk. They didn't know how to think for themselves. They didn't know how to eat. They didn't know how to care for themselves. So over the course of four years, in some of our cases here, 18, 20, 30, 40 years, we've watched our children learn how to walk and to think for themselves and to act. So now if we truly accept that we've been born once, but now we get to be born again of the Holy Spirit, that implies that we must learn how to walk again how to think again, how to talk again, how to love again, how to treat others again, how to serve again, how to be again. But he didn't, he didn't do this in a manner that sent us to do this by ourselves. Like, all right, read this book, and if you read it hard enough, eventually you'll learn the model, which is, there's some truth to that. But the Holy Spirit has empowered us and has filled us to do exactly that, to, to direct us and to guide us and to show us. And as a matter of fact, there's fruits of the Holy Spirit that show us when we're walking in that direction, right? Because the fruits of the Holy Spirit in Galatians are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, right? Those are the fruits of the Holy Spirit. And I've come to learn that I am not always walking in the fruits of the Holy Spirit. I don't know about you, but I am not always there. Right? I'm not always there. But I've also, like, I, I will be completely like, here's the cards. I am, I am like Piglet. I can sometimes be an anxious presence. Right? I, I am, like, I have moments and times and seasons of anxiety. And I've learned that, like, one, there's all the human wisdom in the world that is helpful in guiding and walking me through processes of working through the anxiety. But, but one of the things that I've, I've I've been taught and been shown through, through times of prayer and reflection is that perhaps the reason, now me personally, okay, I'm not saying that the reason everybody goes through this is X, Y, or Z, but perhaps I'm not living the way that I was meant to live. 
perhaps I'm not looking at the patterns of Jesus' life to allow the Holy Spirit to move. Look, we live in, in such a unique place in, in, on earth where if my leg hurts, I take a couple Advil. Or if I, I have a, a concern about life, I put it on Facebook, right? Or if I, I don't like what I'm hearing in one place, I just go to the other one, you know? So we've, we've created patterns in our lives that don't actually necessarily need the Lord to show up or even to live the way that he wants us to live, that he's created us to live. Because, quite frankly, it's pretty easy to live in a place like this. G.K. Chesterton, in his book, What's Wrong with the World, he says, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. Yeah, <laughs> G.K. Chesterton is brilliant, and uh, I, I've read a few of his books, and it takes me like an hour to read a page because there's just so much weight and depth, but I'm gonna break this one down for you. What Chesterton is saying here is that it's not that people are trying to live the way that Jesus lived or trying to live in the patterns that Jesus gave us or that the scripture gives us and been like, yeah, that doesn't work. What's actually happening is people aren't trying it, looking at what it presumably is and says, nah, that seems, that seems a bit too hard. That seems a bit too challenging. But again, Jesus speaks to it this. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 31. He says, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me. Learn from me. Because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Perhaps. Perhaps. The ways of the world have so been ingrained in the patterns of our life that what makes it challenging to live the way that Jesus wants us to live is not because his way is harder, but because our flesh is kicking and screaming on its way out because we're still babies. Perhaps, perhaps we have not allowed ourselves to grow up and to get off of the simple foods like milk and move to the steak that is the garden state. <clears throat> so we're here, to, we're here to talk about the spiritual discipline. So I've... Uh, thought of a million different analogies of what the spiritual disciplines are and are not, but this one kind of runs home for me, so we're going to go with this one. But I think so often we look at, whether it's look at the life of Jesus or of Paul or any of the apostles or people, titans of the faith here in our church or maybe at home, maybe you have a grandmother who has worn like her carpet ragged because she prays so effectively and so often. That, that we look at their lives and we think, like, why, am, why does my life not look like that? Why, why have I not been achieving the same level of faith? Why, have I, why, why am I not show, showing the fruits of the Holy Spirit? Why is Jesus not being shown through my life? But I'm doing the same things that they do, perhaps, at least outwardly. And, and I'm reminded of when I, went, when I was in high school, I played baseball. And there was uh, my favorite baseball player, um, in, in baseball. At, at this time, the Tigers were horrendous, so there wasn't any Tigers to really like. So I, I took quite a liking to, to Ichiro Suzuki. Anybody know Ichiro? Yeah, all right, so I hand, a few handfuls. Now, I was a right-handed uh, white guy from Dearborn, Michigan. Ichiro is a left-handed uh, Japanese baseball player um, that plays baseball in Seattle. But I loved him because he was so unique and so different, and he had this really um, 
really particular batting stance where he would start like this and then he would come back like this, right? And then he was a lefty, so he could cheat because lefties cheat in baseball because um, <laughs> they're closer to first base because he could actually swing and pull himself. And I can't do that because then you're going the wrong direction. But I would start this way and come this way. And then I would be surprised, well, I started the same way as him. Why am I not hitting like Ichiro? Like, I'm doing the same thing that he did. Like, I'm doing exactly, why am I not? I play the same position. Now, granted, they put, in high school, they put the worst fielder in right field, right? <laughs> in the pros, it's because he's got a good arm. But in high school, it was like, we're going to hide him way over there. But, like, I, I couldn't understand for the life of me. Why is this not working for me? And then I realize now, looking back, it's because I didn't stretch like he did. I didn't exercise like he did. I certainly didn't eat like he did. I didn't train like he did. He would take thousands of swings off of a tee every day to prepare himself for the moments that we got to see him. So perhaps we look at these titans of the faith or the practices of Jesus or the practices of Paul or, or the practices of Grandma who prays every night and go, why am I not doing this? Why does my life look so different? And perhaps it's because we're so focused on the outward that nobody's paying attention to the inward. And the spiritual disciplines are an opportunity for us to transform the inward so that the outward looks like Jesus. Because quite frankly, man looks at the outside, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Romans 12, verses 1 through 2, he says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Man, we, we focus so often on don't, don't be conformed by the pattern of this world, and we, we often stop there, and for good reason, for good reason. I, I sometimes wonder if, if Christians, if we, how much different our lives would, be, would look if we allowed ourselves to be renewed internally. Like, how much more effective would our lives be for Jesus? How much more would he show himself through our lives? How much less anxiety would we have? Depression, fear, anger. Ooh, anger. Let's not talk about that one. Here, Paul is challenging us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice that is holy and pleasing to God as a true act of worship. And then by being renewed by our mind, with which I have, I have come to confidently know and believe that the disciplines allow us to be renewed, have our minds renewed, that doing this, we can discern the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Man, like imagine if we walked on the streets of Fenton on a Thursday night, not just externally showing what we think people want to see with big hugs of people that wear the same shirts as us and, and high fives and making sure that the kids go down the slip and slide, but what if every single person that we went to felt and knew that there was something different about our lives. Just like that original intention of the Garden Nation of Israel, that the nations would look at Israel and say, when they live, they live different, and look at how much more beautiful that is. Right? Perhaps if we live the way that Jesus did as a congregation, as a church, people would look to the, the Freedom Center, they would look to your life and say, man, when I don't know about this Jesus guy, but when I see how he moves through that person's life, Something's different. Dallas Willard, I'm gonna, before I put that up, because this is a challenging one. 
All right, this one hurt me a little bit. I like, I was reading it, I put my book down, and I like, it almost led me to tears because I'm so guilty of this. Dallas Willard, in his book, Renovation of the Heart, says, perhaps the hardest thing for sincere Christians to come to grips with is the level of real unbelief in their lives. The unformulated skepticism of Jesus that permeates all dimensions of their being and undermines what efforts they do make towards Christ-likeness. The idea that you can trust Christ and not intend to obey him is an illusion generated by the prevalence of an unbelieving Christian culture. He goes on to say, just like if you can't trust Jesus and not obey him, the same way as going to the doctor, taking his advice and not doing it, or going to the auto mechanic and he says, hey, you need new brakes, and you go, well, I'll just change the oil. You don't trust your auto mechanic. You don't trust your doctor. So if we truly trust Jesus, if we truly trust that Jesus lived a a life without sin, that he died and was resurrected, if we truly believe that, then our lives should be changed. I mean, our lives should be radically transformed. Because if a man came to earth, if God sent his son down to earth as a man to live a life, to showcase what it meant to live, what it meant to love, what it meant to serve and be obedient to the God of the universe. And then he invites us to do the same thing alongside me. Hear me, church. If, if we trust that that happened, truly trust it, I, I can't go back to the way things were. I can't go back. It would be like having the medicine that takes away all the pains of the world and saying, I just, I don't know. Like, it says 1% of people have a small side effect, and I I just don't want to take the risk. (laughs) So let's talk about what the spiritual disciplines are. So first, I think the spiritual disciplines are an acknowledgement that God is God. Just by by allowing ourselves to follow the patterns of Jesus' life, it's simply an acknowledgement that God is God, that he's the creator of the universe, he's my author and protector. He knows the hairs on my head, even though they're running out by the day. Right? He, but he knows me and he created me, and as he, he created each of us with a purpose, he also created us with a design that was meant to live a certain way. So by living in that way, I'm acknowledging that the Lord created me that way. The second one is that it's an acknowledgement that Jesus is, is our good shepherd, that I can trust him to lead me and show me where to go and, and to direct my thoughts and my paths, that he would lead, lead me to an abundant life, that, that garden state. It's an acknowledgement that Jesus lived a perfect example of how we're meant to live, that if we look at the patterns and the practices and the disciplines of Jesus' life, if that truly is the perfect way for me to live, then I should probably follow them. Right? Like if I want to swing like Ichiro, I got to practice like him. Right? I got to live like him a little bit. I have to make sacrifices to do that. So it's an acknowledgement that Jesus did that. And finally, it's a concession that I can't look like Jesus. I can't experience the garden state of life without changing the patterns of my life. Like I, I can't. I can't do it by myself. I need help. Right? Like I need the Holy Spirit to help. And a lot of these disciplines are going to lead us. Because this next slide, get your cameras out. We're going to take a picture because I'm going to list a bunch up here because I don't have time to go through all of them. But these are the disciplines. So um, we have disciplines of abstinence or abstaining or stopping or, or uh, withholding, and then we have disciplines of engagement. 
So I'm going to focus on a few on either side um, just to teach, but I will be in the guest room after service. So if you have questions or comments, concerns or complaints, you can email office at freedomcenter.church or you can come talk to me in the guest room. (laughs) So first, silence and solitude. This one, Jesus goes back to over and over and over and over again. You know, that, that Jesus would go up to the mountain to be alone and pray. Now think of the, now, I mean, it's, it's so easy when I read and study scripture to just imagine like Jesus went up to the mountain and he just like, he like teleported to the top of the mountain, right? Or like when, when Jesus and his disciples moved to the other city, it's just like, oh yeah, they just hopped in the Mustang, put the top down and drove down to Galilee, you know? But there was a period of walking. So Jesus by himself walked to the top of the mountain. And in that time, he had solitude where it was just him and the Lord. And there was silence because it was just him and the Lord. We're afraid of silence right now. I mean, I, I'm afraid of silence now. I can't tell you when I got 30 seconds to myself, I reach out my back pocket, grab my phone, and get distracted. But silence is a place for us to be alone with the Lord, to, to just be captivated by his presence to allow him to to show himself, to dwell on him, to give him space to talk to our lives. And solitude is not like going to the driving range by yourself, right? Like, because that's just a distraction. Like, solitude is going for a walk at one of the state parks without a phone, without your watch, because now your watch can give you all that information too, right? where you can leave the cares and the worries of a world that is an echo of the garden to come. Fasting. I, I once heard someone talk about fasting. There's two things that I think we get wrong on this. One, I think some of us can go our entire walks with Jesus without fasting one time. Second, fasting is not what we think it is. Fasting within a scriptural context is no food. Like, no food. It's, it's a day, it's an hour, it's a, a, a period of time where you've withheld your fleshly desire to be fed to allow yourself to, to understand the control that your flesh has and to give the Lord back that control. Okay? Fasting is not giving up social media for a few months. Right? Like, it's funny when people fast things like that, like fast, it's always like, you can tell there's an ulterior motive. It's like, I want to fast chocolate. It's like, or you want to lose weight, right? Like, I'm going to fast social media. Oh, you finally noticed how bad it is, right? Like, there's always this ulterior motive, but fasting, and I'm going to tell you this, like, Wednesday, Wednesdays from sunup to sundown, my life group and I, we fast every Wednesday. We fast and we pray towards things together as a community. We, we, we allow the Lord, I'm telling you, by one o'clock in the afternoon, like, my flesh is screaming. And 3.30, when I'm getting feeding the kids the afternoon snack, and Levi hands me a full thing of uh, uh, fruit snacks and says, I don't want this anymore, that dad tax is calling. But I can't be paid. <laughs> because I am allowing, I am recognizing how much my flesh controls me, and I'm saying no. For the first time in who knows how long. And so fasting is such a, it's such an important practice. So I'm inviting you, church, Wednesdays, we fast, my life group. But I'm inviting you to fast with us. 
And with all of these, it's not what you, you know, I think who started the diet that starts on Monday that ends on Tuesday afternoon, right? Like maybe you bit off more than you can chew and that's okay. But, but these disciplines are, are, are going to be new and going to be challenging. But, but on the other side of them is a, a freshness that, that allows the Lord to have transformed and renewed our, our lives and our mind to look more like Jesus, to be more aware of, of the, the areas that our flesh needs to be set aside, to be more uh, immune to the temptations of the world. Because it says that Jesus was tempted like all of us, yet he was without sin. And I'm convinced that's because, I mean because of the disciplines. And I'm going to show you a perfect example here in a moment. Now, when we look at the disciplines of engagement, study, studying your Bible. There's so many opportunities to do that, whether it's with a small group. Um, We have so many. Just go on freedomcenter.church and through the ministry page on the groups page, it'll list every group that we have available that you can get into a, a group, a small group environment and study the scriptures with them but to prepare yourself to have answers when the world asks questions. When I was going through anxiety, I realized that I would have thoughts, I would have temptations of like thought lives that were trying to direct you in a certain direct- direction, and I was made very aware that I was not fully equipped with the verses of Scripture and the places for me to answer those problems, that I wasn't prepared. Um, and then we have um, worship and celebration. I read a quote recently Someone asked the question, is your God too small? And he went on to say, I I hope that your God isn't so small that you can fail to worship him every day of your life. That, That have you allowed the Lord to be so vibrant in your life, to be so real and tangible that we can worship him every single day of our lives? Whether it's listening to a worship song on our way to work or it's it's taking a moment and thanking him for his goodness. Thanks, Miss Pat. I knew I'd get one clap for Miss Pat. Yeah, and then I, I, I'll, we'll finish these with fellowship and, and, and confession. I think when I've heard and talked through people, talked with people that have dealt with long, long-term sin in their lives, one of the first questions I ask is, have you talked to anyone? Like, am I the first person? Have we confessed this to a life group, to a small group, to trusted friends and family? And then you realize that nobody talk to anybody. They didn't say anything. They just thought, oh, you know, I'm going to do this all by myself. Like, well, are you in a small group? No, I'm going to just me and the Lord. Well, he didn't design us to be alone. He didn't design us to do these things alone, right? Like, he, he designed us to, to, to live life together communally so that when people see the way that we love one another, they know that we are disciples of his. So I, I'm going to challenge you, like, if you're not doing any of these, pick one, and if you don't know what some of these words mean, I'm sorry. Um, I had to sneak in one $5 word into the message. But, <laughs> but I would love to talk with you, whether it's over a cup of coffee or in the guest room after service to help guide you. But like, what these offer, these offer just this. These are practices of a reborn life that echo those of Jesus. So when we ask the question, when we ask the question, What are the disciplines? This is the answer. They're the practices of a reborn life that echo those of Jesus. Through those disciplines, we have opportunities to shed the ways and the patterns of the world so that we can follow the ways and the patterns of Jesus. What a privilege. What a beautiful opportunity that we have to follow the patterns of Jesus that he has demonstrated to us. So let's look at a, 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 an example within Scripture. We're going we're gonna to juxtapose or compare Genesis 3 versus Matthew 4. 
So in Genesis 3, it starts off with the snake is cra- was craftier than any, other, uh, any of the other animals. And he, he pulls Eve, and he's like, did God really say that if you touch that fruit, you'll die? Now, Eve, not knowing exactly what the Lord said, not trusting exactly what the Lord said, perhaps even adding to what the Lord said, says, well, it's a good question. I don't know. And so she grabs the fruit, and she doesn't die. So, oh, well, maybe now, because of this false thing that I added, if I eat it, I won't die either. And she did. And then so did Adam, who was probably right there. So it's not just Eve's fault. Sorry, you guys. I know we've been hanging on that one for a while. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, but, but they both failed because they were, I don't think they were living disciplined lives with the Lord. So Matthew chapter 4, the Holy Spirit leads Jesus to go to the wilderness to be tempted by the enemy. So he does. Now, in response to this, my reading always for this, and you know, maybe I'm alone in this, but my reading for this has always been, well, you know, Satan was waiting for Jesus to fast. So he was really hungry, so he was weak. And Jesus was in a point of weakness when, at the end of the time, when Satan finally tempted him, that he was really hungry, and, and it just showed just how strong and mighty Jesus was because he was able to, to remove that temptation for, those temptations from his life in spite of his weakness. But if you look, what actually happens is that the Holy Spirit leads Jesus to go to the wilderness to be tempted. So he did the disciplines. So he fasted. And so he prayed. He didn't do those as a, like, I'm just going to show the world how, to, how strong I am and how mighty I am. He did the disciplines. He fasted and he prayed because he recognized that the only way he was going to be able to, to get through this was if the Lord showed up. There was a monk some hundreds, year, hundreds of years ago, and he read this exact same story. And he was so inspired by it, he decided he was going to be like Jesus. And he was going to go off into the wilderness to fast and to pray and go to war with Satan. And after a period of time, his, his followers, those that he was teaching, started to hear rumors that he was winning. That he was winning against Satan. So they ran off to him and said, teacher, show us, like, what have you learned and, and what he said wasn't some, like, hippie voodoo thing, right? Like, you would almost expect what he said was, I took the temptation, I took the feelings, and I wrote them down. And then I wrote down a verse of Scripture, a truth from the Word. And every time that thought or that feeling entered into my life, I remembered that verse. And he learned how to reform the patterns of his thought to be renewed by the transforming of his mind so that he could discern the good and perfect and pleasing will of God. Because then, when temptation came and he said no, he chose the Lord's truths, the Lord's way of life, that when the world screams and cries at us to, you should be anxious, you should be depressed, you should be upset, you should be frustrated, you should be angry, you should be hurt and scared, and and all of these things that the world is trying to drive us towards, We as believers can stand on a high tower and say, no, 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 there's a greater way. 
that through the Holy Spirit, through Jesus, we can demonstrate to the world that we don't have to be defined or conformed to the patterns of the world, but that we can be renewed by the transforming of our minds so that the world can discern and see the good and perfect and pleasing will of God. Just like Chesterton said, what if rather than looking at the the disciplines and leaving them untried and found too difficult, we found them tried and found fruitful. What if we as a congregation fasted together and prayed together and worshiped together, that we lived frugally so that we could give expediently? What if we, we lived serving and loving and in solitude and secrecy so that we would know the Lord's voice louder than any of the others? that we would find him in the quiet places, that we would be freed from the the throes of temptation. So we're gonna end with this question here. And are you living the way you were designed to live? Like a lot is said and should be said, I might add, about walking in our callings and walking in our purposes. Those are all so, so important. But if if we don't take take two steps back and live the way that the Lord designed us to live, I think it's no wonder so many high-profile, long-term leaders are failing is perhaps they focus more on their calling than they did the disciplines and the way that they were meant to live. I think a time is coming when the world is gonna look to the church for a better way to live. It might even be here now that the world is looking at their patterns and their habits and their thoughts and realizing that there's no fruit here. It's just pain. It's just hurt. And if they look at us right now, what do they see? Are we just as hurt and frustrated and anxious and afraid as them? Or have we allowed ourselves to be conformed to his truth? Have we allowed ourselves to enter into and demonstrate the garden state that's an echo of the eternity to come that's in that perfect blissful garden that we were meant to be all along. So I'm gonna ask you to bow your heads, close your eyes as we go into a time of prayer. Lord, you are our shepherd. We have everything we need. Lead us to green pastures and still waters. Lord, help us, guide us, lead us, show us, teach us. Lord, these these disciplines aren't a way for us to become more monk-ish or more, um, you know, set apart to the world's eyes. But these, these disciplines, these practices are an acceptance that you are the Lord of our lives, that you are our king, and that you have a better way for us to live. Lord, if there's anyone in this room that, that maybe they've, they've come to a church and they've, they've heard, about, heard the gospel and raised their hands so that they can get out of hell and, and stop there, Lord. I pray that you would, you would just create a new charge in our hearts to, have, to, to realize that there is more to this life than raising a hand and accepting your salvation. There's more to that, that now we get to walk in your calling and in your design and in your perfection every day for the rest of our lives. Lord, we're not meant to, to, to raise our hand at a church service and wait till we die. We're meant to get to the gates of hell and show them that there's a better way. 
So, Lord, we just thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your truths, Lord. I just, I, Lord, I, I just beg you, help us to not leave these things here. God, the, the worst thing that we can do is leave them here in these seats. Never to be thought of again. Put us in relationships and small groups and, and, and families that would challenge us to, to live as you live, to, to model our lives after the patterns of Jesus. God, we're just so thankful that you have allowed us to live this life. We're just so thankful that you continue to move through each and every one of us. God, we give you the glory and the honor and the praise. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you are dismissed. We'll have altar workers here in the front. Um, I'll be in the guest room to field questions, comments, concerns, hugs, and high fives. But with that, we bid you adieu, and we love you 3,000.